Fiction and reality. New stories, new ideas. Little Beth Entertainment. Hey everybody, welcome to the Model Rocket Show at themodelrocketshow.com. I am your host, the Rocket Noob, and we are back with another episode. This one's been in the can for a few months. We are talking with Mike Nowak and James Duffy. James making his second appearance on the Model Rocket Show. And I've talked to Mike as well, but I don't think it's been on the Model Rocket Show. I don't think I've talked to Mike since I was on the Rocketry Show. Uh, But they are here together, and they're going to be talking about FAI space modeling competition, which is a subject that you may have heard a little bit about. uh, But there's some exciting news because the International Space Modeling Championships, which have for a number of years taken place abroad, mostly in Eastern Europe, Coming up in 2023, it is going to be held in the United States. So that means that if you are like most of our audience, which lives here in the United States where I live, uh, you have the opportunity to be a part of the American team and compete in the International Space Modeling Championships uh, without having to worry about the expense or the difficulty of transporting your rockets overseas, which is very exciting. So I'm really excited to have James and Mike on the show. We had a great conversation. You can hear all about it. I do want to tell you about a show sponsor, RocketryForum.com. The Model Rocket Show thanks RocketryForum.com for their support. This is El Corinth. That's my handle on the Rocketry Forum. I've been a member for going on eight years now. The Rocketry Forum is a global community of rocketeers who openly discuss all aspects of hobby rocketry. So if you have a question, hop on and ask. There are hundreds of experts who can answer just about any rocketry question you have. Check them out today at rocketryforum.com. Also, I should mention, I've been meaning to mention this in the last few episodes, we have merch. The Model Rocket Show and the Rocketry Show has merch. And I only found out about this a few months ago. I didn't even know about it because I... I don't get the proceeds, but we have uh, mugs and uh, other things. I got myself, a mu- I went and I bought a mug because I figured I'm on the Model Rocket Show. I had, should have a mug. I got a mug. I got a journal and it's got our logo on it. Uh, if you just go to our website, themodelrocketshow.com and you look on the right hand side of the page, there's a little link that says show swag and you click on that and that'll take you to Public, our page and you can get stuff uh, for the Rocketry Show and the Model Rocket Show. Uh, it's pretty cool. Very excited about it. Um, I just opened an Etsy store. Uh, I feel like maybe I should mention that. And it's uh, still pretty small, but I'm adding new stuff all the time. And it's going to be mostly rocketry and aviation-themed stuff. Uh, you can go to my website, rocketnoob.blogspot.com, if you want the link to that. All right, we are going to talk to Mike Nowak and James Duffy in five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Model Rocket Show, a podcast that is all about low and mid-power model rockets, like the ones you buy at hobby stores and fly in a park. And now, here is your host, Daniel the Rocket Noob. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Model Rocket Show at themodelrocketshow.com. And we are in the studio today uh, with a couple of guests. We've got Mike Nowak and making his second appearance on the Model Rocket Show, James Duffy. How are you doing, guys? Doing well. Doing great, Daniel. And we're going to talk about uh, FAI competition and maybe a few other topics. So, um, why don't you guys start us off and tell us about uh, competition rocketry and FAI in particular? 
Okay, um, I can I guess start with this. Those who are involved with the National Association of Rocketry know that there is competition in the NAR, basically duration and altitude events. The FAI is the organization that oversees all international uh, aeronautic events, you know, model airplanes, skydiving, and also model rocketry, which they call space modeling. Um, so this applies to countries all around the world, uh, the U.S., China, Japan, any all the countries in Europe um, participate in this. Uh, the rules are different than in the U.S. for a variety of reasons, but the concepts are very similar in that the events um, go from maximum duration of flight or maximum altitude in general. Um, the duration events are, are your typical events like you'd have in the States, namely parachute duration, streamer duration, helicopter duration, and rocket glider duration. Um, what's really different about these events uh, and the way that they're managed compared to the U.S. is that they have set rules on the minimum size that models must be. In other words, uh, you can't have a tiny microscopic model that pops a streamer that no one can watch from a distance. Um, models in these in parachute, streamer, and helicopter duration have a minimum length of uh, 500 millimeters and a minimum diameter of 40 millimeters, or at least half of the length of the model. Yeah, all the models end up looking the same from the outside. But the challenge is getting models light enough to get really good altitudes and have reliable recovery with them. Um, gliders are similar to the U.S. rocket glide uh, events in that the model goes up, does not eject anything, and then goes into a glide. The other major difference with FAI compared to the American competition is that um, the events are flown in rounds. What does that mean? Uh, for example, you will have, in all these, you will have to make three flights in a day. Your score is a combination of the totals of each flight. Uh, but there are designated rounds when you and all the competitors in that event must fly. Uh, in the States here, those rounds are usually 45 minutes because we maybe have 20 to 30 competitors. At larger events where you have hundreds of competitors, it can be 90 minutes. But what that means is you must fly your model within that round. The advantage of that, I, I think, levels the playing field with folks. You're flying in the same air conditions, the same amount of lift, the same climate. So it, it seems to be level amongst competitors. Um, one other item that makes it a little bit different is the concept of maximums. Uh, you know, you can have an 18-minute parachute duration flight. Great. It doesn't matter in FAI. Um, once you hit five minutes, the uh, timers will stop timing you. Uh, what that means is 
you know, you, you just fly to try and hit that five minutes or better. But, you know, five minutes max is, is the most you can get. It's not uncommon, say, for parachute duration is a five-minute max. It's not uncommon at a world or a European championship to have three or four competitors at the end of a day with three maxes. And then they go to a fly-off. Um, the maxes are different. They're shorter for streamer duration, obviously, shorter for glider duration and, and helicopter duration. Um, besides those events, um, there are other standard events that are, are similar to the United States, uh, one being scale altitude and the other one being scale. Again, the models are judged um, for accuracy, precision, workmanship, all those good things, just like they would be in the States. And again, for scale altitude, um, the altitude that the model achieves is added to their judging score to get the total score for that event. Um, the biggest thing I can tell you about scale, if you are a scale modeler, if you ever have the opportunity to go to a world or a uh, European championship, you will see the greatest scale models assembled in one room that you will ever see in your entire life. Um, the workmanship on, from across the world is just impeccable. Um, and if you're into that, it is just something to be seen. I have uh, seen photographs, and I honestly, I don't even know. I don't know how a person makes something like that from, by, well, by hand. <laughs> well, two, two things that are different than in the States. Um, you will see at most of these competitions that the models, the prototypes modeled tend to be standard, like Saturn 1B, Saturn 5s, Soyuz, um, Ariane's. Made friends with a Polish modeler who won the gold medal uh, for his Saturn 1B. And two comments from uh, the story from him of how he did it was, First off, uh, the countries often fly as clubs, as teams. Although these aren't hits, the molds that were, that were made from original prototype are saved by the club and are used by the modeler to make their parts, to manufacture their model. So they're really not starting from scratch. Somebody, mm -hmm. They're working, building upon the success of, of someone who built before them. That being said, I asked him, so what else? He says, okay, for one year, all they did was work at work and on, and on my model. No parties, no girlfriend, no TV, no beer. No, well, maybe a little beer when he was building, but you know, <laughs> none of that. He just focused. And you see people really focus on, on what they do. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really impressive. So they get their 10,000 hours in pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> um, two other events I'll just mention that are that are unique to FAI. Um, one is a radio-controlled rocket glide, which is kind of a crossover event, I think, with uh, some of the uh, glider uh, flights that are done in the uh, model airplane community. But these are done, these are rocket-boosted usually with very long burning E motors for the adults and D motors for kids, but they are completely um, 
greater controlled in ascent and then descent. And the goal for adults is to stay up exactly six minutes and then land on a small target. So it's staying up a long time and being precise as how long you're up and where you land. Hmm. And your scoring is, you know, away from that six minutes and away from that target, you know, you get, you get points and the lowest score wins. You'll see people hitting the target or getting within, you know, a meter of the target consistently as a pro. That's really impressive to watch, uh, especially for someone like me who doesn't do radio control. Yeah. And one other event that was actually inspired by TARC um, is precision egg lofting. We like to call it metric TARC, where <laughs> the goal is to launch a hen's egg exactly 300 meters, keep it in the air exactly 60 seconds, and to do that in, in three separate three rounds, do it three times, and don't break the egg. And again, the scoring is based on precision, you know, if you, how far away you are from that 300-meter target and how far you're away from that 60-second target. And for people who, who, I mean, most of our audience has probably heard of TARC, but for those not familiar with TARC, it is a, it's an engineering challenge. It's called the American Rocketry Challenge. It's an engineering challenge for uh, high school and junior high school students where you have to design and build a rocket that will carry a payload. It's usually one, sometimes two eggs. It depends on the year. Uh, has to hit a specific altitude, and the flight has to last a specific amount of time, uh, and it's 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 quite a challenge. Um, and of course, students uh, do the compete uh, all across the country, and they do their flyoffs in Virginia, and then the winning team goes to the internationals, which is uh, alternately uh, in Paris or the UK from year to year. Um, so that's that's it's a pretty challenging thing in and of itself, but uh, to do it three times in a row. <laughs> and how, how do they do? Well, we had a uh, FAI meet at Narum this year. To get a bronze medal, you had to be within five meters of 300 on all three flights and within 10 seconds of 60 on all three flights. Hmm. That sounds easy, but it really, really isn't. Oh, no. I mean, just with the variability of motor performance, I, I don't even know how you, how, you, how you dial it in that tight. Right. Um, there's, different, there's a lot of strategies involved, and there's, there's a couple of diverging schools of how to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Some of us believe in hitting it up there as, you know, like an S67, get it up there as quickly as possible. So you don't worry about crosswinds, weathercocking, minimize that. And then it's just dialing in the, uh, the weight, the mass to get to 300 meters and then dialing in the parachute. Yeah. But others try smaller, others try other things. It's, it's kind of interesting. There, there are a lot of different strategies to get there. How did the, the two of you get involved in FAI competition? Did you start with NAR and then sort of crossover? Or what, how did you do it? Hey, Daniel, it's James. I'll take a stab at this. Sure. So uh, the way I got first exposed to the idea of international rocketry is probably a whole lot like many of my compatriots on the team. When I was a kid and I got that 
copy of Model Rocket News every couple of months from ESDAS, very often there'd be a little blurb about a, the world championships for space modeling or the world championships for, for model rockets. And I was always fascinated by that. Keep in mind, this was Cold War era stuff. And the articles would always make reference to it being held in some far off land with a name that ended in a vowel. And I thought being able to do that someday would be the coolest thing ever. Uh, when I began my professional life and I got back into model rocketry enthusiastically a little over 20 years ago, I had the good fortune to meet Tony Reynolds here in Texas who had been doing this, who had been participating on the U.S. team and going to the world championships. And he kind of shepherded me through that early phase of uh, meeting people on the team and understanding the events and understanding where, where I might be able to contribute. And uh, he was just an invaluable resource to me. And uh, I was fortunate enough to make my first U.S. team in 2002. I got to go to uh, the Czech Republic. And I was hooked from then on in. It, model rockets plus travel. What a combination. That's incredible. And we're talking yeah. about going to some really cool places. Um, the, the focus in the space modeling world is very much on Eastern Europe. And that is because of some political reasons related to the Cold War, interestingly enough. And... Uh, we can get more into that if you like in a bit here, but Mike, I'd be curious to know if my experience was really that different from yours. I'm a few years older than you, James, uh, but back in when I started the hobby in the late '60s, in the midst of you know Apollo and all, and then got into NAR competition in the very early '70s. Um, yeah, I would get my model rocketry magazine. <clears throat> and every few months, there'd be a grainy black and white photograph of a model from some Eastern European modeler at a world championship that blew me away. And there is there was a modeler, I believe, from the Czech Republic. Back then, it was Czechoslovakia, right? By the name of Otakar Šafek. Had the most beautiful Saturn V model I have ever seen and it was so the detail that kind of kind of blew everybody away at me not only did he have the model he had dust covers for the display for the nozzles on the saturn V that looked to be the scale so it's like this is this is a level of craziness back then but it's like this is really cool i want to see this um i got to be good friends with matt Steele. got really into an AR competition, and then something called college and medical school happened. I dropped out of the hobby, got a family, and then once I became a born-again uh, rocketeer, got back into competition, and it was 10 years ago that my daughter Rachel and my son Nick tried out for and made the U.S. team. Um, Going for the first time with them was an amazing experience for them. Probably more and absolutely amazing for me, but I think, you know, they got a view of the world that 
you know, they couldn't even imagine. And, and I did as well. Um, daughter continued because she was young enough to Nick aged out rather quickly. And then I decided to uh, start competing as well. And I, as James said, I got hooked on the modeling, the model building, the competition, the travel, and meeting and talking to some really interesting people from some countries around the world that I never dreamed I'd, I'd connect with. And there is a bit of a language barrier at, at times, but not as much as one might think. Yeah. So, Daniel, another thing that's really fascinating is that we'll go meet these people, and they're a whole lot like us, except they speak a different language and we're brought up differently in a different system, and their backgrounds are different. But just like us, they've flown model rockets their entire life, and they have a passion for this and an interest in what they do. And they've never flown an Estes motor in their life. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's really interesting to see model rocketry through a completely different lens with people who, who don't have the shared experience that we have here in the U.S. Right. They have to go invent everything on their own for the most part. Now, each country tends to have a couple of motor vendors. Um, we frown upon that here in the U.S. because of the safety concerns, but it's a reality of life in in the former Soviet bloc. But it is the contrast between their experience and our experience, yet it all comes together with these common threads. That's that's really mm-hmm. fascinating and notable. So... Uh- you, that, that kind of that kind of made me think of a couple of things when you're talking about motors and motor vendors and um, do do they have similar requirements for motor certification? Like here, you in order to fly with the NAR, you have to use manufactured certified motors. They have to be tested and certified before they can be uh, sold. Is there a similar process there, or does it sort of vary from country to country? Are there people who make their own? I'll start. Um, it varies from country to country, mm-hmm. and a designated person often in that country will will manufacture them. Are they certified and tested as they are in the states? The short answer was no, but I'll put an asterisk next to that. Mm-hmm. When we are at a Europe at a large competition between countries, either a European or World Championship. Um, all of the motors are static tested before the meet. Yeah. Just to see what their performance status is. You know, are they, you know, in line with the right total impulse for that event? Yeah. Did you have something to add, James? So the motor issue is really challenging for us as Americans because we go over there and we're frequently confronted with motors that we've never used before especially in the duration events. Now, in the other events, scale, scale altitude, and S8 rocket glider, we make the finest motors in the world. Estes and Aerotech motors cannot be topped for those events. And we go out of our way to ship motors for those events over to, to Europe for use there. 
the other events tend to be a little more challenging. Um, one thing that is, this is kind of an interesting story. Years ago, uh, Matt Steele, Steve Crystal, Bob Kreutz, Jay Marsh, and several others, I think Chris Flanagan was part of this group. We actually sat down and thought, what kind of motor would we like to have for the scale altitude event? And we wanted a full 10 Newton second motor that was a long burn motor. In other words, much more uh, impulse and longer burn than, say, an, an, an to C67. So Matt right. has a background in motor manufacturing, and he went and chatted with Gary Rosenfeld at Aerotech. And working together, they created a perfect motor for the scale altitude event that we could use as members of the U.S. team. It's called the Aerotech C3.4, and it's been manufactured mm -hmm. in both six-second and eight-second delays. And interestingly enough, it is NAR certified. If you go look on the NAR certified rocket motor list, you will find a listing for the C3.4. That is probably the rarest model rocket motor ever made and certified in the United States. I believe only 100 were mm -hmm. made of each delay. And we've used those successfully for our team in, in recent years. Uh, Matt Steele actually won a gold medal using that motor in, what was that, Mike, 2016 that Matt won his gold medal? Right, 2016. So yeah, 2016 in Ukraine. That thinking, yeah. that approach is what the Europeans do for everything. Now, we don't have that flexibility here. We can't go to Gary and say, make us motors for uh, the S3 parachute duration event. Because he doesn't make motors that right. small. The other point that I did not make is that most of the motors flown in the duration events are 10 or 10.2 millimeters in diameter. A diameter, a size that's not available in the U.S. currently. So does that mean you have to make, if, you, if, you're, if you're competing in those, you have to make your rockets of a, of a non-standard, non-U.S. standard size? Correct. Yeah. And you don't test fly them until you get overseas. Oh, that's fun. It's a challenge. And yeah. you have to, you have to be willing challenge. to accept those challenges if you're going to participate in this program. Now, let's talk about the way forward. Um, the United States has been very, very adamant about pushing an idea called the common motor box. And the idea behind the common motor box is that the same motors will be available for every team competing at a world or European championships. And the same motors will be in every team's box in each lane. Now, what drove that? Um, motor availability is certainly an issue. That's, that's the primary driver. Um, a secondary issue, a secondary driver for us here in the United States was that we hope to host a, a world championships at some point. This is a conversation that started many years ago. And we knew that motors were going to be a problem. So we submitted a bid almost two years ago to the FAI, 
proposing to host a world championships here in the United States, providing the motors for each team in each event, and every team and every competitor will have access to the exact same motors. That is a revolutionary idea, and it's one that we feel is long overdue. Uh, it also mm-hmm. takes us out of that regulatory gray area that exists in Europe and puts us into yeah. a green light area here in the United States. If we hold a rocket contest here in the United States. Now, does this have anything to do with Eastern Europe and, and the, the politic, the political Things you were touching on earlier, the Cold War politics. To a small extent, probably. Uh, I think more than that, it has has to do with uh, economics. I don't think so directly. Mm. I think it's more historically, this is how it's been done in those countries. And, And change comes slowly. Yeah. Well, I imagine, I mean, you know, model rocketry is, you know, here we have strict rules about Manu- buying manufactured motors that have been certified by the NAR or Tripoli or the CAR or what have you. Um, and, you know, it's part of the model rocket safety code. Um, there are countries where model rocketry doesn't have quite the same um, history and or presence. And Estes doesn't have a presence. And so... People want to get model rocketry started in those countries. Sometimes they have to, you know, do what we would consider a violation of the the model rocket safety code and um, find a way to make motors. Um, See, now I'm trying to be careful here. No, that's a fair way of saying it. You know, you know what I mean. And and and, uh, you know, depending and and. and I'm not sure what what countries specifically I'm talking about, but I've occasionally been approached by, just on social media, by people from various countries where there really isn't much uh, model rocketry stuff. And, um, you know, of course, before model rocketry in this country or or before it became a big thing, I mean, I know a lot of model rocketeers who were fans of the movie October Sky, and that right. guy was making his own propellants, and that's not something we do anymore. His own nozzle, right, right. His own nozzles, his own propellants. Um, yep. And, of course, you know, every, every time it's that video that keeps getting posted on the, on the forums uh, by people who haven't been there for, for that long, the, the spinning wheel of death, you know, the, the Thai rocket festival. Uh, and, of course, it always gets taken down because it's homemade motors. Um, I don't imagine that they have Estes in that country. <laughs> Um, I will well, say that they may, maybe they do. I don't know, but it's you know. Yeah, Estes and uh, Aerotech are certified to ship to EU countries. Yeah. Um, the question is trying to find a distributor in your country, right? Right. Because they get to the UK rather easily, they get to Germany rather easily. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, it's problematic. Yeah. But it's been very interesting, you know, as James says, you know. For certain events, our model, our motors are superior. It's interesting to see how many scale models from Eastern Europe are flying on Aerotech motors. So it, it does happen. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Be right back after this. 
It's time to talk about our show sponsor, eRockets.biz, your home for unique model rocket kits, as well as the world's largest selection of rocket parts from SEMROCK. In business since 2009, eRockets doesn't just stock many of your favorite in-production kits, but they also produce their own versions of popular out-of-production models many of you have come to enjoy over the years. So one of the things I'm looking at right now that I think you might be interested in is the Estes Der Big Red Max, which is the 3-inch upscale of the Der Red Max. And Semrock on eRockets.biz has replacement parts with if you want to upgrade to uh, plywood centering rings and plywood fins. So maybe you want to beef that rocket up a little bit. It is a cool-looking rocket. Um, Der Red Max was my first rocket, and I have one of those. I have a Der Mega Red Max still in the package, which I have not put together yet. Uh, but I feel I really need to complete the set with a Der Big Red Max. Uh, so that is really exciting. The kit itself is $32.99 on eRockets.biz. You can get the fin set for $11.99 and the centering ring set, which has a slotted centering ring for the, uh, the, the fin tab on the fins. And that is only $8.99 for that. You can also pick up a nice shock cord, half-inch wide, 30-foot black shock cord, uh, at that's $4.99. You can get all that at eRockets.biz. If you need parts for your own custom builds, that's not a problem. eRockets.biz supplies the Semrock line of airframes, nose cones, centering rings, motor mounts, and so much more. eRockets.biz has more rocket parts available than anyone on Earth. So check it out today, eRockets.biz, to learn more. eRockets.biz, if rocketry scares you, buy a train set. Now, here's one of the coolest, most exciting products I've seen in a long time. Just imagine the thrill and excitement of launching your own real rocket into the heavens. Reach altitudes of over a 1,000 feet and then watch your rocket majestically return back to Earth on its own colorful parachute. These amazing rockets can be launched over and over again. Just replace the rocket motor for each new flight. For propulsion, they use the new QJet composite propellant model rocket motor from Aerotech West. This revolutionary high-performance rocket motor uses the same family of propellant as the Space Shuttle Booster. Aerotech Quest has successfully miniaturized NASA technology, so now you can create your own private space program and launch whenever and wherever you wish. They feature complete star designs, dozens of awesome rocket kit designs, a complete line of high-performance composite propellant model rocket motors, plus launch pads, launch controllers, and many accessories. Check out their entire line of incredible model rocketry products at aerotech-rocketry.com or questaerospace.com. Armed and counting, three, two, one, blast off. Daniel loves your model rocket questions. If you have any, send them to noob at themodelrocketshow.com. That's N-0-0-B at themodelrocketshow.com. Now, back to Daniel. I'm curious about this common motor boxers. Is the, pr the proposal to make these motors available uh, throughout the countries that participate in FAI so that they can have access to them before they get here, because I know, I know you. We were talked a little bit about wanting to have a championships here, and I understand that that is going to be happening. Uh, so, is that is that the idea? Making making a motor that is um, generally available. So, the practice is at a world championship, each country flies from a particular lane. It's a, a, a small range area. They're usually arranged in a semicircle around the range safety officer. In that, each country's lane is a, a box. It's usually a small toolbox. And in that box are the motors that that country has submitted for testing prior to the event. 
under the common motor box protocol, the motors that are in each country's box will be exactly the same as the motors in every other country's box. Mm-hmm. And those motors will be of a type that each country will have access to long before the, the competition ever takes place so that they can prepare. There are, at this point, three, com- three companies in the world that can do that. Two of them are American. They're Aerotech and Estes. The third is German, uh, Klima. Mm-hmm. Klima, interestingly enough, wants nothing to do with competition motors. Mm-hmm. They want to provide standardized motors. They don't want to make special competition motors. And I completely understand where they're coming from. Estes motors, on the other hand, are great for competition. Are there motors that are lighter? Are there motors that might have a few more Newton seconds in them? Absolutely. But the important thing with Estes is that every A3 has exactly the same performance within reason as every other A3 that's manufactured, Mm -hmm. that comes out off the assembly line in Penrose. And that makes it a great competition motor because they're widely available, they're inexpensive, and they promote competition with a fair and equitable level playing field for all competitors. And so that it's about the rocket and not about getting, getting a special motor. Correct. Yeah. Which I think is really the, this seems to be the spirit of, of, of a rocketry competition. You're building the rocket to fly. You're not just trying to, you know, get that one motor that's going to be just, just right. Absolutely correct. It should be a competition between flyers and their models, not an arms race between motor manufacturers. Right. I imagine it could be a little frustrating to get there. And then you, you have to try and use motors that you haven't used before. And maybe it's not doing quite what you were expecting or what you were, what you were hoping. Has that, ever, has that ever been a cause for frustration for you guys or for other competitors? I, I think the biggest cause of frustration was the ability to ignite these things reliably. <laughs> um, these are, again, 10 millimeter motors, really tiny little nozzles. And they don't come with igniter packs, right? So, you know, we've tried many of the American igniters. We tried bare nichrome wire, and to to try and get these <laughs> ignited reliably has been a challenge. With some help from some of our overseas colleagues, that has improved. Yeah. And there are some motor there are some co- motors from some countries that absolutely are, are more reliable than or easier to ignite than others. So, uh, how can a person join the U.S. team? Excellent question. Um, <laughs> well, as some of your listeners may have heard, the World Championships are actually going to be in the United States in 2023. To get on that U.S. team, there will be a flyoff in 2022. At Narum. In 2022, there will be um, three events held in the United States. 
that will be flown using FAI rules that will be FAI Cup events. One will be the um, Arizona Cup, which will be held in early March in Tucson, Arizona. It's over a week. It's a two to three day event over a weekend, as these all are. The next one would be Fire, which will be held in Austin, Texas in early April. It will be held on the field that the U.S. World Championships will be held. Hmm. In late June in Muskegon, Michigan, we will be holding the Can-Am Cup. And the team will be picked based upon who is at the playoffs, how they perform, and perhaps some other um, per, perhaps some other criteria. It's still in the works. But generally, you get on the team, you go to the playoffs. You, if you score highly, you qualify for an event, and if you do that, you are on the team. And then the flyoffs, as as mentioned, will be held at Narum in uh, mid July, and that's going to be in Springfield, Missouri. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So, how are you going to get these motors for the World Championships? It's real simple. We're going to go to Estes and Aerotech, and we are going to purchase the same motors that you can buy at your hobby shop and make them available to all of the competitors from all over the world at the World Championships in 2023. It will be the simplest, most fair approach to a very tricky problem. And we think that the international rocketry community is really going to embrace this. And then the, you, the, the championships, are, the world championships are going to be 2023, you said in Austin, is that correct? That's correct. The World Championships will be held in 2023, specifically July 2nd through 8th in the Austin, Texas metro area. We're going to be holding the championships at the test and production site of a orbital rocket manufacturer called Firefly Aerospace, who are in the process of building and uh, testing an orbital class rocket that they hope to uh, sell, and uh, they're basically a, a small version of SpaceX. Hmm. It's a very exciting company, and uh, we've had the good fortune to meet and engage with those people, and they've been very supportive of us, and uh, they've graciously allowed us to host, to use their site to hold the world championships in 2023. As we're recording this in late August, Firefly is roughly a week away from their first orbital launch attempt. Hmm. They hope to fly from Vandenberg Air Force Base on September 2nd, I believe. So uh, hopefully by the time you hear this, they will have been successful and uh, will have uh, successfully flown their first orbital rocket. So let's say um, I want to be on the U.S. team. Uh what are the steps I need to go through? I like pick a pick a pick a, a competition, pick a uh, an event, build a rocket. I mean, what do what do I need to go about? First of all, what, what do I what are the steps I need to take, and then what are some pointers that that you might give me uh, so that I might be more likely to succeed and get on the team? Let me take this one, Mike. Good. If you're interested in joining us on the team mm-hmm. and being a part of this. The best way to get started, the first thing you need to go do is go find 
the international rocketry section of the NAR website at nar.org. There's a wealth of information there on how to build and fly international competition rockets. Now, given the fact that we'll be using U.S. motors exclusively at the 2023 World Championships, you can go use the motors you buy at your hobby shop. Those are the motors we're going to be using in Austin in two years. As for the rockets, it's a little tougher. Traditionally, FAI rockets are built out of carbon fiber and fiberglass. It's not a requirement that you use those types of rockets. We've seen people meddle with simple vellum rockets, and uh, they work just as well as the fancy fiberglass or carbon fiber versions. It's worth noting that Tim Van Milligan at Apogee Rockets has designed and sells 40 millimeter parachute, streamer, and helicopter duration models that anybody can buy and use, and they're perfectly legal and perfectly acceptable for use at the, the fly-offs or the world championships or, or any other FAI-type competition. He also offers a boost glide kit, or excuse me, a rocket glide kit that's acceptable for FAI competition as well. Now, the other events we haven't mentioned yet are radio control rocket glider. Frequently, what people do is take a discus launch RC glider and add a motor pod to it. That's mm. the most competitive way to participate in that particular event. Scale models are no different than a scale model you might see on a, a NAR sport flying field, just done to a higher standard. Scale altitude, uh, it's just a matter of uh, building a scale model that is small and light and meets the dimensional requirements. And uh, there are things in the Estes catalog, I think, that uh, meet some of those requirements. Now, earlier on, Mike mentioned, uh, the, well, he mentioned the, the, the 500 millimeter by 40 millimeter rockets that you frequently see with parachute, parachute duration, streamer duration, helicopter duration, and how these are slightly different than the model rockets a lot of our rocketeers in the U.S. have seen if they haven't done competition rocketry. These are these long teardrop-shaped rockets. Do you want to, they're, they're a little different. Do you want to talk about them? What are the advantages of them? How do the people make them? That sort of thing. I'll be honest with you. You should the, take that, Mike. Yeah, the, the kits that Tim Van Milligan sells are exactly those. They, they fit those criteria exactly. And he does it using a classic, you know, uh, spiral paper-wound uh, paper body tube, um, a uh, paper uh, cone, and then a uh, motor mount using a 13-millimeter, basically a BT-5 tube with a centering ring to, to do that. Um, the kit is self-contained and really gets you through that. What gets more difficult is if you want to do things uh, on your own, like roll your own body tube, roll your mm -hmm. own you know, tail cone. Um, most of us, if we get that involved with it, we get a mandrel either out of aluminum or plastic and lay either vellum paper or fiberglass, as James mentioned, over that to create the airframe. 
my suggestion if you're starting start simple um with like one of the kits that are already there for you and pre-made they are basically the same assembly as a standard uh any standard uh level one or two model rocket kit Mm -hmm. now when i first went to narcon my first narcon uh i think the first session i went to i watched tim van milligan do a fiberglass layup on one of these mandrels and it creates this tapered sort of long tapered bulbous looking rocket uh it's very narrow at one end wider at the other end and extremely lightweight lightweight um and it, it looked like it took a lot of patience but he passed one around and somebody handed it to me, and I had this panic moment because I almost crushed it because it was so thin and so lightweight. It was made of fiberglass, but like thinner than paper, paper thin. <laughs> it startled me, and I was recording the session, and I was also trying to take pictures, and someone handed it to me, and I went, crick, and then, oh, no. <laughs> Yes, the the 40 millimeter airframes are a revelation for somebody who's never seen one before. They're made using usually one or two wraps of half ounce fiberglass. When you think of a fiberglass rocket, most people think of the very heavy, durable tubes that you find in a high power rocket kit. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with those tubes, but they're very, very heavy and they're built for a particular task. Competition model rockets such as these are built for a particular task, and they're built so that they're six to eight grams in weight. Think about that. We're talking about a 40 millimeter diameter, 500 millimeter long rocket that without a recovery system, it only weighs six to eight grams. And most people are shocked when they see that. They, they, don't, they don't understand how it can fly. Because it's so, it, it seems so diaphanous and so inconsequential, but it, they fly beautifully and they're remarkably durable. Mm-hmm. But they're, the important thing here is that they're built for the task. There's a steep learning curve associated with making your own fiberglass tubes. But fortunately, you may not be able, you may not need to rather. Uh, vellum tubes are actually very easy to make. You go to the art store, you get vellum paper, um, and you cut it to the right size, and you make yourself a 40-millimeter tube. You could use a BT-60 standard tube as your, uh, as your mandrel to do that. So there are ways to get your foot into the pool without jumping all the way in the deep end. Mm-hmm. Now, if you decide you do need to make your own fiberglass tubes or you get to that point, there are resources out there. I believe there are, there's a full video tutorial on how to do it that's uh, on the NAR website that shows how to do that. I think Dave O'Brien did that several years ago. There are also a handful of international vendors who will sell you a, a finished 40 millimeter tube that you can then add your own streamer or parachute or or helicopter recovery system. So there are ways to get into this type of competition without making your own fiberglass tubes. Now, we talk a whole lot about these 40-millimeter tubes. That's only three of the eight events, though. The other events 
can be done with traditional model rocket or RC glider tools and supplies and are perhaps a little more accessible to, uh, to the, the, the neophyte, the person who's never done this before. Right. So both of you, James and Mike, what are your favorite events to participate in and do you have favorite events to watch? Sure. Um, I'm a scale nerd. I enjoy building scale. I get crazy building them. And I absolutely enjoy walking through the scale room to see the models and, and watching them fly. Mm-hmm. It is, that's, that's what I enjoy, number one. <clears throat> a close second, something that requires a whole lot less effort on my part, is the precision egg loft event. Um, the idea of using, you know, an F motor and FAI competition was foreign to just about everybody up until a few years ago. Hmm. But the work and the design and the engineering that goes into that and the precision of getting it there, getting it back, and flying consistently is challenging and a lot of fun. And James? Much like Mike, I'm also a scale nerd. I've always focused primarily on rockets that you actually have to paint. And I love big, complex scale projects. I've built a lot of uh, Little Joe models in the past. I have built uh, bumper whack models for scale altitude. I've meddled in scale altitude before. And I really enjoy the challenge of building an accurate replica of a real rocket. Now, having said that, I also love the parachute event. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made the team, I think once I made the team in the, the parachute event and got to fly at the world championships. And watching your rocket boom away on a thermal <laughs> under a, a perfectly deployed chute, there is no joy in life quite as quite as rewarding as that see i'm i'm the opposite because if it takes too long to get down i'm gonna lose it (laughs) well here's the cool part about flying on the parachute team you stay in the range and you prep your next model while your teammates go miles down range and retrieve your model see that's what i want now we can tell you a whole litany of stories about models that we've recovered from 10 kilometers downrange. Oh um, we've destroyed some rental cars in the process. And uh, that can be almost as much fun as flying at a world <laughs> championships. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier on the, the concept of uh, max times for these duration events. And my question is, uh, if you have flyers who have three max times and then they have a fly-off, what happens if they max out the, the fly-off? Who, how do you determine a way? Is there, are there co-winners in these things ever? Actually, what they do in the fly-offs, and we actually had one here in the States for about the first time in recent memory. Um, the, the fly-offs happen in rounds, and that's at the discretion of the contest director. But usually, the first, one, the first round, rather than a five-minute max, would be a six-minute max or a seven-minute max. Mm-hmm. And if after that you still have a tie, and I've seen that at a world championship, the final round is maximum duration with no limit. Mm-hmm. And um, what's uh, I'll also make another point was different in FAI competition compared to United States competition is the timers are permitted 
to use binoculars. And our mandate is actually to have one member of the timing team use binoculars. Mm-hmm. And ideally now binoculars on a tripod so that you can be watching this little blip on the horizon. The timer can be watching this little blip on the horizon yeah. through binoculars for a long, long period of time. What is the longest duration that you have either witnessed or been, been aware of? Oh, I've got a great story yeah. here. So in 2012, the world championships were held in, uh, where were we, Mike? Slovakia, Slovakia, is that right? Yeah, Slovakia. Okay, beautiful site on the side of a mountain. It looked like something out of Sound of Music. Absolutely. I expected Julie Andrews to come yodeling down the hillside at any moment. Um, one of the Canadians put up a model in parachute duration that, that never came down. It just kind of cycled in the contest area for about two and a half hours. <laughs> it just kept hitting thermals? It just kept hitting this. I think there was some mechanical lift associated with the, uh, the hillside there. Mm-hmm. It would go up and it would get kicked out and then it would come down and it would catch that mechanical lift again. And it, it entered, entered this perfect rotor that would take 15 or 20 minutes for a, for a complete cycle. Wow. Um, later that afternoon, we noticed that it had finally landed. Yeah. Kevin Johnson and I took a, a rental car. Rental cars feature prominently in these stories, by the way. <laughs> up the hill and found this rocket, which had, like I said, we think it was in the air for over two and a half yeah. hours. Now, the remarkable thing is that two and a half hour flight, the Canadians didn't even place. That's how challenging this yeah. is. You've got to be perfect in order to do well at a world championships. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't try. Uh, I've, I've, haven't won a medal since 2004, but something keeps me coming back every year. And there's more to this than flying. Yeah. There's the camaraderie and the fellowship with this close group of friends that I've developed over the last couple of decades that is just so rewarding and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And we're really committed to making that group bigger and younger. We really need to get some fresh blood within the U.S. program. And we think that hosting the world championships here in the United States is going to be a big part of bringing that next generation or next generations, plural, of rocketeers into this little community and making it a lot bigger. Yeah. One of our stated goals for the, the 2023 World Championships is to have an absolutely immense U.S. team. We can have a theoretical max of as many as 32 senior competitors and 32 junior competitors. And we want to reach that number. Yeah. Uh, there are people actively working on recruiting right now. If you'd like to learn more, uh, drop myself, drop uh, Mike an email, um, get in touch with Steve Crystal or John Langford or Trip Barber or Matt Steele or any of the other usual suspects, and we will keep you in the loop as we work to build this community to make it bigger than it ever has been. And uh, 
as we build this team to represent the United States in 2023 on home soil. Yeah. All right. And to add to what James said, I mean, you can't, as opposed to any art competition, it's really different in that we, as being part of the team, I've always felt that my teammates have helped me, have supported me, and I've done likewise. You know, we've, at the last several NARAMs, given talks on scale modeling secrets, and the comment was, well, we have no secrets because we're sharing them with you guys. Um, mm-hmm. We don't mind sharing what we know. We want to share what we know about different events, and we want to pass it down to new people that are interested in participating. We want to mentor you. Daniel, you've, you've, been, you've had that experience with me in recent yeah. years. I, I think I took you down uh, the dark uh, airbrush road a couple of years ago. Yes, you, yes, you did. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to help people with little things like that. And I've, I've gone out of my way to document what I do in both video and threads online and, and, and getting that information out there so that people can learn more and share more. Because this community has in the past, before I started, uh, more than 20 years ago, it developed a, a reputation for being insular and elitist and kind of jerks, frankly. Now, when I came into the program, I found out that all that was wrong. And the people who I met when I started could not have been more polite and more supportive and uh, went out of their way to teach me so that I could carry on. And uh, we just, we're at the point where we need to pay forward and do it for another old generation or two of modelers. Probably helps being all on a team together. It is a team activity. Mm -hmm. You're flying as an individual, but you're also flying as a member of a team. And that team, all those team members wear a U.S. flag on their shoulder. It's an extraordinary feeling. Well, guys, thank you so much. And uh, if there are any other uh, resources or anything else that come up after we finish recording, you can check them at our show notes. We'll point, we'll link to the NAR website, any, uh, any uh, relevant uh, resources that you can check in our show notes at themodelrocketshow.com. Mike Nowak, James Duffy, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Daniel. We enjoyed it. Thank you, Daniel. It was a a pleasure. I, I, I really, I always enjoy talking to you guys. All right. Thanks a lot to Mike Nowak and James Duffy for talking to us on the Model Rocket Show at themodelrocketshow.com. This has been The Rocket Noob. You can follow me on Twitter or on Instagram at Rocket Noob. Noob has zeros in it. That's internet speak for newbie. Rocketnoob.blogspot.com is my blog. And again, it's Rocket Noob. Noob with zeros. Rocketnoob.etsy.com is my Etsy store. You want to check that out. Uh, You know, I've got some things I'm working on I'm pretty excited about for that. All right, I'll catch you next time. See you later. This show is brought to you by the support of our sponsors and listeners. If you wish to support the show for just a few dollars a month, please become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash the rocketry show. 
Don't forget to check out our sister show, therocketryshow.com, a program that is all about advanced and high-power rocketry. The views and opinions expressed on these programs are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Little Beth Entertainment or its sponsors.